Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman, and if I've got my numbers right, this is episode 250, which kind of feels like a milestone. Um, and so, you know, thanks to Tea Leaf Tea and Yeasty Boys who've been the sponsors for this, and uh, thanks to everyone for listening. And uh, if this is your first time here, welcome. I had a chat with Greg Smith. Uh, he is a an, an actor, he does voice work, um, he has been a filmmaker, man, He's done all sorts of things. He's a, an artist, he's a glass blower, uh, carves stone, uh, he's a DJ, a musician. Uh, he has been or is all of these things and he's a great storyteller. Um, I've met, uh, Greg and I have known each other for a little while online. I don't know how we met, just probably connected through Facebook. But we have, uh, we talk about this in the podcast, we have um, shared a bit of work back and forth. Um, you know, I'll, I'll send him a poem or a story, and he'll send me one of his stories, or and and I check out his uh, DJ sets that he puts online, his, his radio shows. Um, so we sort of bounce a bit of feedback back and forth, and then I met him when he came down to Wellington last year. We had a had a coffee and a chat, and we talked about doing a podcast. And so over the summer, I was up in Auckland, and I reached out to him, and said, you know, it'd be great to come and do this chat. So I went to his house, sat in his little studio and we had the following conversation uh, which was really cool now one of the things Greg's doing is uh, on SoundCloud he's putting up occasionally some stories where he just does a monologue some of them have music underneath some of them are him just talking telling you stories from his life and so after we had this conversation as soon as I finished recording this chat with him I said to him look if you're up for it it'd be really cool for you to share one of your stories as an exclusive to the podcast and he thought it was a cool idea and he bounced me one a couple of days later so keep listening at the end of this conversation if you like what you hear and you're intrigued at the end it will fade out and then it will come up with just Greg talking he will introduce his story and for about 10 minutes he will tell you a story from his life um, there are so many stories from his life in this conversation uh, we talk about uh, all sorts of things he is a man who has done and experienced many things uh, in and around New Zealand and uh, he has a great passion and love for the arts um, and I, I loved this conversation and so it feels very cool that by complete fluke this just happens to be episode 250. Um, maybe you've seen Greg in TV shows and movies, maybe you've seen him, uh, maybe you've seen his work, uh, his work is amazing, as art, um, so check him out, there'll be links to all of that stuff, this is me talking with Greg Smith. You're a person I feel like I've known for a lot, we've met once, Yeah. we've only met once and it was only recently but I feel like I've known you, I guess it's... I mean, not just because I've seen you on screen and stuff, but I guess it's because we've got some similar pursuits, perhaps. But Absolutely. I don't know how we've even really connected. I guess it's just no, Facebook. I think I think it was the book. And, mm. But I've actually, I did really, really love the Robbie Williams story. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. Um, and mm. so I think I, uh, I. I became empathetic with you, with you, uh, without knowing you, mm. through what you'd gone through, and I really like your, you know, your kind of uh, uh, a mixture of, you know, humility and this is who I am, and mm -hmm. and, and and in a reviewer, you you know, you seem to put that together really well, and I love that. If you don't like it, even though if you're friends with them, you'll say I don't like it. Mm -hmm. and, that's just awesome, you oh, know, good. because you really want that. So I actually, yeah, yeah, I look to you as like, well, when I've got something to, I want to show it to yeah, you, yeah, 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 because I've got my mate Grant Smithies, yeah, but 
we were really good mates, you know, mm. and um, and he would say, well, it's a bit dodgy or something, but, you know, <laughs> but we're kind of mates like that, so, you know, yeah, he yeah. just take the piss out of me. But I figured, well, you didn't know me really at all, yeah, so yeah. you're just going to go, yeah, I don't think that's working on. No, I really like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've, we've in fact, done that. You have yeah. sent me a couple of stories and things that you've been doing, and, I, I mean, I, yeah, so I guess we just know each other through Facebook, yeah. really, but I met you a couple of months ago. In, in Wellington and we had a nice chat and I think before that I'd said to you oh, someday we should do we should definitely do a podcast I did because you're um, you're a storyteller yeah in many different guises and then you've also done these other things and I want to try and get into as many of them as we can so sure. where do we start where did, where did you come from where, where, where did you arrive in this world so uh, I was born in Otahuhu Hospital when there was a hospital in Otahu, mm-hmm. um, but we lived in Pukekau where the crew murders were. Um, my dad worked on the railway lines there. Um, and so I was born in Otahu and then we lived in Pukekau for about 18 months. And then my dad accidentally caused a train derailment. And so they moved him to Onehunga. Mm. And we got a little tiny little railway house in Onehunga just on the edge of the swamp in the industrial area there. And we arrived there in, uh, just before 1960. And so I grew up in Onehunga, and it was just amazing. It was like factories, and there was like two kilometers of swamp with springs. There was a huge old tannery. It was just an incredible place. So I formed a gang of mainly Polynesians, because it was all Polynesian and Maori. And, uh, yeah, we just kind of broke into buildings and... Just had the best time, <laughs> you know, best time. I really loved it. And then um, I kind of grew up and, and you know, I didn't know what I was going to do and everything like that. And my parents kind of, I liked music. It was the only thing I really liked. So um, so my parents said, well, you know, you should do, a, you know, electronics course or something like that. So I started this electronics course at in-house one at Allied Industries about two and a half years. And I met this this group of people there, they were like, they'd all come from Otahu themselves, from Otahu College, and they were like a, a unit, and um, I, they invited me away for a weekend with them. We went to Waikiai, and we smoked all this dope, and it was just really, had a, such a good time, and so I kind of fell in with them, and then this other guy at work was one of my bosses there, an English guy, he took a shine to me, and he was... He lived in this incredible house in Onehunga. It's still there. It's a three-story thing on Hill Street looking out, and it's got an empty section next to it, which is still there. checked. And there was these five guys that lived there, and they traveled the world buying drugs from different parts of the world, and then they send them back through the post system addressed to the empty section next door, and the postman just gave it to them. So I got invited there to play cards. And uh, and each night was a different night. It was like Turkish night, and all the little Turkish pipes would come out with this hash or his Durban poison. So I was like fifteen and a half. They're all in their twenties. I became like this mascot, you know. Yeah. And so I had this at work. I started to sell a bit of weed and that. And then I ended up on Thursday afternoon with payday. I would make more money in an hour selling drugs than I would all the time there and I had this conduit for all this great drugs so I just quit and became a drug dealer and and I was a drug dealer for about oh, a couple of years and I just sold acid and weed and hash and shit like that and then I met this girl whose brother was a um, courier for the Mr. Asia syndicate yeah. but he had been inside 
um, for a couple of years. He took the rap for a big cocaine thing. And he came out, when I just met his sister, he came out and the Mr. Asia guys kind of like looked after him. So he got all this amazingly uncut heroin, which he then gave to his sister, who was a junkie. And she was like, well, you're the dealer, so you might as well deal. So I went from kind of like selling drugs in South Auckland to dealing heroin in Remuera and St. Helier's with all the rich boys, which <laughs> who hated me because I was from Onihanga. But I had the best gear in town. So I went from not doing any sort of heroin to doing quite a bit of heroin. And we got right into the heroin thing. And I was like, and we had really good heroin, so it didn't really kind of get sick or anything. And I met a lot of people who had been in that world for a long time. And looking back, I've always been with people that have been older than me. And so I've seen their whole lifestyle. And I tend to come along as it's really good but coming to an end. And so all these great people and it all falls apart, mm -hmm. you know. And so it was the same in the heroin world, you know. Like, it was brilliant. We're doing really, really well. And then Greg and Julie Ollard's headless, uh, handless bodies were found and, you know, in and, and Sydney and it was like, ooh, and it all started to go wrong. I was quite good looking when I was younger. And so I had a lot of girlfriends. And so I got this thing that I started to have girlfriends all around the country. So I would like travel to their place and I'd hang out for two weeks and then I'd say, oh, I've got to go. And I'd, so I had this kind of string of circuit. girlfriends. Yeah, the circuit. And I would just <laughs> pitch around my circuit and it got, you know, Gradually moved to the South Island and Mochuweka, and I went out with Miss Mochuweka, and and, uh, and then I had this really great motorcycle accident, which really changed my perspective of things. And um, then someone said to me, "Hey, there's this guy called Greg Smith. Your name? He lives on the west coast. He's having a party. We should go." And I was like, "Fuck, sounds fine." So we went to the west coast, met the other Greg, and. Um, yeah, loved it. Thought, fuck, this place is cool. And it was a Saturday, we went to the party, woke up in the morning. They said, okay, well, let's go to the pub. And I was like, Sunday. He's like, no, like, bro, this is the West Coast. It's like, okay, so you go to the pub and all the blinds are pulled and it, there's no cars, but you go in the back, it's fucking packed with cars. <laughs> you go and yeah, it's fucking going on. And so I was like, wow, this is cool. And I'm in there drinking and that, playing pool. And then, Phone goes and the public answers and he goes, oh, okay, everybody. And everybody then troops into the dining room and we all sit down in the dining room and a bowl of chips is put in front of us and we're like, and then the cop comes in and he's like, oh, we're just checking on you guys. Oh, you've all got a feed. Oh, that's all really good. He has a wee drum and off he goes. He comes back <laughs> in the public. And I thought, fuck, I could live here. Right? This is pretty cool. So I kind of hung out there uh, for a year or so, just kind of and stuff and then I went away overseas for a bit and then came ran out of money came back went back down to the coast and uh, met this woman and I uh, had this glorious night and she got pregnant like that and uh, but she owned two acres of incredibly beautiful land right up high a uh, view of 400 miles all the way down the the, the South Island to Mount Aspiring mm. and everything and um, she grew her own dope she made her own beer and her own wine and she had money and she was hot and, and she was pregnant to my so I was like I'm gonna live here. Yeah. So yeah. So then I ended so up living on the coast. You couldn't get better than that. No, it was a great deal, eh? <laughs> great deal. It turned out she didn't like men that much. There's always something, you know. She she was a little bit more lesbian inclined, but she chose me, you know, and we had kids. So um yeah, so I lived on the coast for about 
oh, 18, 20 years. And uh, it was great. And I became a glass blower. Where did that come from? Because I've heard, I've, I've, I read an interview where you basically said everything you've done, you've kind of just fallen into. Yeah, it's happened by mistake. It's totally. or whatever. Like, yep. That so was what very I, much like. You know, you, you, I mean, gosh, we've only been talking for five or six minutes and you've already outlined the great Kiwi novel that hasn't been written as a plot <laughs> and at a relentless pace. And I, I want to know, I guess, to, to pause you up for a bit, I want to yep. know how long you can sustain that, not just dealing, but yep. taking drugs in that environment that you were in. Yep. And, and, you know, whatever ambition that robs you of, yep. um, when does that shift? And when do you find some, you know, when does some decision come that mm. oh, there's more to life than what I'm doing? Because you're having a good time. Yeah, you're having a good time. Well, it's always been a really late bloomer, <laughs> so it took quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the, the, I really liked drugs, you know. I mean, I loved smoking dope. I was really into LSD. I really, really liked LSD. But then I met this LSD wizard, and he kind of ruined it for me. Because he was like this guy that couldn't really function that well normally, but he'd take LSD and he seemed to like grow. And he used all these kind of like, you'd all be tripping and you'd be like, whoa, this is, wow, this is pretty wild. And he, he would take your words and he would change the tone. You'd go, oh, that's pretty wild. And you go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty wild. And he goes, oh, so that's pretty wild, is it? <laughs> And you go, yeah. And he, you'd start to doubt yourself. And so he did this to all my friends and he fucked them over with all this shit and it just ruined LSD for me. But he was like, you can do this. You can. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I just want to laugh and hallucinate, you know. But he was like, no, you know. So that kind of ruined LSD for me. I was like, ah, I don't want to do that anymore. But I loved weed. Heroin was great, but I was quite happy once it was over. It didn't bother me. I didn't really, you know, I didn't do any more of it. Um, but I always liked weed, a joint and a beer was kind of one of those things, you know. So I kept that pretty much forever. And, you know, I still have periods, you know, I'll just, um, I'll say to my wife, I'm going to have a couple of weeks and, you know, I'll buy some nice weed and get some good beers in and I'll hang out in here and play music and, and then, you know, I'll get a bit heavy in the chest and <clears throat> my gut will grow from the beer and I'm like, that's it. And I'll stop. So I managed to get to a point where I can control myself. But I've never said kind of that's the end of it. Mm. I've always kind of, so I've always allowed myself to think, I can do this, this is fun, you know? Mm. And so, yeah, so I've always kept that thing. And drugs have really informed me. They put me in situations where the wildest shit's happened and I wouldn't change it for the world. Example? I had a good time. Oh, wow, wow. I know there are many. <laughs> there are just a lot. <laughs> Um, fuck. Wow. Uh, I, someone posted a pic the other day of uh, Vulcan Lane in the, in the 60s. And, and I remember that we were in Vulcan Lane once and uh, we were in the Queen's Head there. We bought these pills off Dolly Rocker, who was this kind of really outrageous kind of gay guy that dressed all up and Dolly, yeah. And, and there were some couple of weird guys hanging around they were undercover cops. And so we left. They knew who we were. And they followed us. And they followed us down the street. And we're walking down the street. And they're kind of with us. And and, and I could, oh, these guys. And then the next minute there, they're kind of like, hey, you're under arrest. And did a suspicion of drugs. And da, da, da. And when we got to our car. 
And I was like, oh, this is really, really bad because in the, the glove box of the car, my girlfriend had her, you know, her pencil case full of hypodermic syringes and all the shit, you know, and the heroin. Was, and so we get in the car and they're like, oh, we're going to search your car. And I'm like, oh, this is all going wrong. And they open the thing, they see the, the, they see the thing there and they go, what's that? And she goes, that's my pencil case. And they went, oh, okay, you're an artist. And she says, yeah, I like to draw. And they went, okay. And they shut it and they said, look, can you just give us a ride up the road? And we're like, oh, okay. So I drove these three undercover cops sitting in the back of the car. Me, I go, we drove them up the road about a block. And they went, stop here, let us out. And they said, look, so we've got our eye on you, but, uh, you know, you can go this time and I was like, fuck. I don't know if that's a great example because it was just the one that came yeah, to me. Yeah. But but <laughs> shit happens, and you just kind of like yeah. sometimes you just felt you got pushed in some directions, you know. And mm. yeah. So what do you what what made you you know? I guess what made you seek that out was it happened at an early age. Happened at an early age, and then you um, you know you're on the on the ride. Mm. And I just stayed on the ride because yeah. it was fun. Yeah. And it just seemed to it just seemed to be a better option than anything else. I couldn't see myself working. I just just couldn't see I couldn't see the point. I could make enough money in, in a couple of hours selling drugs, so I couldn't see any reason to actually do any legit job. So and it was a fun lifestyle and you know, I had some hairy things at the time got really close. I remember I was staying in Hamilton with some friends and uh, both these guys had were growing this huge plantation up Narawahia and uh, it was getting ready to I arrive and they said like, Oh, we're gonna you know, we're gonna be harvesting the next couple of days and I'm like, Oh cool, you know mm. and they said like hang around and I was like, Oh sweet And then <laughs> in the middle of at about three in the morning I'm woken, I was in this little spare room, I'm woken by one of them come in and he's like, hey, shh, shh, don't say anything. He's got this huge sack of weed and he stuffs it under my bed and he goes, don't say anything. So I'm like, okay, so I go back to sleep. I wake up in the morning to the shouting and fucking carrying on and the other guy was quite violent. They'd been out to their site and someone had ripped them off and stolen all their weed and he's like, I find myself. And this is, and I'm like, and the other guy's looking at me like this and I'm like, Oh my God, all the weed is under my bed. This guy's ripped off his mate. I was like, oh, gosh, oh. Yeah, I thought that guy was going to kill me, actually, because he thought that I'd done it, and that was pretty scary. I mean, you've just given me a flashback to, you know, I haven't made that many good decisions in my life, but uh, I think the best decision I ever made was when a guy who was living next to me when I was a student offered me to live in a house down the road on the terrace and he'd pay for my uh, rent. Right. So long as I looked after his stash and and took ownership of it. And he just offered it to me. Right. About the second or third time I met him. Right. And I said no very quickly. I never regretted that. But no. I often think about, <laughs> I do often think about the sliding door scenario yeah. there of what if I had just thought that this was an easy way to um, have an adventure over a summer? Yeah. And I'm I've, I'm kind of pleased I wasn't that open minded. I guess I could just yeah. see the obvious yeah, yeah. Good on stupidity you. in that at that time. Yeah. 
uh, but for, that was smart. for me. Yeah, yeah. And so I think, well, if I've made one good decision in life, that was it. But it's funny, isn't it, when you share these sorts of stories, you start to think about, you know, I haven't been a, at all a prodigious drug taker, but I've obviously had some mm. and on a few occasions. And, ha- and, and, you know, when you say you have some interesting stuff happens to you, I start thinking about, yeah, actually, some fascinating shit. <laughs> I do know exactly what you mean. <laughs> yeah. And you even know it, you even observe it in other people. You do. You watch other people. It's sort of... You know, it's sort of like some other world. You just kind but what, of... what is it about us that that quote unquote needs that mm. to feel that level of liberation? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I know there's a, I know there's a chemical process. Happening. Yeah, you know, I think it's that search though, because you know, like I think basically at, at, at the when you get through all that stuff, you get to the bottom of, and it's a search for meaning, and you know, like. The ones that, uh, that that successfully give it up usually do it through, you know, a 12-step AA mm. or mm. that they find, you know, a religion in some form or something and um, and, and it, it, it helps them, you because know. Because the, the 12th step is very similar to a religion. Yeah. Oh, it is it is its own religion. It is. It's, it? it's a religion. Which is not to knock it. No. At all, but it's... No, you know, a lot of people have done it. It's yeah. been really successful for them. I've got, um, you know, I've got friends that do mm. AA and mm. they, they swear by it and um, I've but never they, done it they, myself. But, but they quote things yeah, yeah. in the way that a person... It's a backbone for that's them. That's it. It's like, it's like they yeah. didn't have a backbone enough to support them mm. so they they incorporated this thing and it's given them strength yeah, it's a set of rules and it's great and and, yeah. and i understand it and, yeah. and i completely but it's never been me because i know that i inside i've got it i've got the strength to do it i just have to get into the right place to do it mm. and so i've always you, trusted myself and how do you find that out about yourself uh, you know, by putting be, yourself in really by putting yourself in the dumb situations, really and, shitty and situation. surviving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I've always said yes. You know, you said yeah, no, yeah, and that yeah. was it. So someone goes, and I go, yeah, and they're like, so glass blowing, right? Mm. So the local couple of the local dealer growers decided to set up this alternative glass thing and so they made a list of people who you know of good age that's strong and you know that could possibly be interested so i was one of them they approached me and um so just the fact that these two guys i knew they grew a lot of weed came to visit me and they had this proposition for me so i was already my antenna were like yep. and so they said hey so we're setting up this glass studio and and you know you want to be involved i said yes and they said well, we haven't really finished. You know, this. Mm. Do you know anything about glass? I was like, nah. Mm. They, so, but you want to do it, and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, well, can we ask you why? And I was like, well, I know, you know, you guys, and uh, I figure if I'm hanging out with you, I'm going to get to smoke dope every day. <laughs> and they're like, I was just thinking. Okay. I was just thinking. <laughs> You were, you were sitting there going, this yeah. is something I could do yeah. while smoking weed. Yeah, no, I was just yeah. thinking about smoking weed. I had yeah. no idea about glass. And mm. funnily enough, I ended up being relatively quite good at glass. Well, and that's underselling it somewhat. You're being yeah. humble. So well, you've, you've yeah. been a successful yeah. gla- glass I got artist. There. You got there. I got there eventually. Well, I think you, the thing was, I think the thing that was successful was that we didn't realise that we were pioneers. Mm. Um, we were... Because I, I, I was invited to speak at uh, the American Glass Conference celebrating 25 years of Studio Glass, 
as a pioneer. And we, in fact, were the only studio glass people in the world to have... We didn't have any electricity, so we built a dam in mm. the hills with a big pipe and a Pelton wheel to provide truck batteries and little lights. Mm, mm. We didn't have any gas, so we, bu we bought a gasifier, a wood gasifier, and chopped up wood mm. from the local mills and dried it and fed it into this gasifier to create this very unstable gas. We made bricks out of local clay. We did everything wrong. After three years, we still didn't even have glass. People were visiting us from all around the world going, you guys are incredible. We're like, bro, we can't even make proper glass. There's just like bubbles that are sort of stuck together, you know? So, but that became a thing that everybody kind of went, you guys, you know? So when I got and was, there... And was it... Was it uh I'm thinking of that. I think it's that Bill Hicks routine where he says marijuana doesn't lead to other drugs; it leads to carpentry. carpentry. Like, <laughs> you know, so is, is, is is that is that you know? Because it's like you know, people can always make a bong, can't they? An apple or whatever. Yeah. And, and that's what it's sounding like that you guys will get um, stoned. And what else do we need? Yeah. What, what do we need to make this work? How could we do that? It was totally like that. Yeah. <laughs> and we just and we just did it. You know. And eventually, though, we kind of got sick of it because we weren't really you know making glass and. So we started learning from other people, and uh, the Hoglands were really good, just all of Hogland. And, um, and then I got a grant to study here in Auckland from the Arts Council, and then I got another grant to study in the States. And, yeah, and it all just kind of got better and better, and I started, you know, exhibiting the States, and then I put together some big shows, and, and yeah, and I was, and then I got invited to speak, and I did this thing, and it was kind of like my, it's like stand-up. I sort of did the haka, and... And then I told these stories about sodomy and all sorts of shit and growing weed. I'm very little about glass, but I got a standing ovation. People, that was fucking awesome. And uh, and uh, I came out of the the, the the green room, and there's this this people. There's this, this huge horde of people, and they're all shouting and fucking. You know, it was amazing. Everywhere I walked in the campus was in Seattle. People are coming up to me and going, "Man, I heard about your talk. I can't wait." You know, it was like I was being offered. You know, come and live in this house. You can blow. And it was just it was. All going on, but I just met my wife to be about three months before, and my dream had been to go to America and do all this, and then it all come through. But I was like, "Oh, I love this woman." Mm. So at that point, I said, "Nah," and I walked away. And those people have never seen me. You know, I've never appeared again, and I just came back home and um, gave up glass and became a house husband, and you know, it just kept my hand in really, mm. and and that was the end of it. I never really bothered with it again but then that same thing I ended up becoming an actor exactly the same way just my girlfriend was like uh, prior to my wife my girlfriend was like um, hey you know she was doing stuff in the America's Cup you know, she was still figure there and she's like hey you know we're going to be in Auckland for a few months you know why don't and she's reading the paper why don't you do this extra work for Shorten Street and I was like well, what, what's that she's like oh you just stand at the back of the thing you know and I was like oh that sounds good so I rang it up they said oh yeah come down so I went down they went oh fuck you got a great look took some shots a couple of hours later they rang me up said you start on Xena tomorrow morning mm. I was like oh cool so I became an extra on Xena and I was having a great time love being extra no interest in acting or film world and extra it was great and then this AD said to me Greg, you don't want to be an extra. And I was like, oh, I quite like it. And she's like, no, 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 no. You want to be an actor, ring this number. So it was an agent. I rang them. They said, oh, you come in. I said, oh. so what have you done? And I was like, 
oh, an extra. And they said, don't ever tell him you're an extra. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, have you got any, you know, any history of drama? I was like, nah, no, 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 I'm a glass blower. And they're like, oh, okay. No, you got a good look. So, look, have you agreed to do some courses, you know? And I was like, yeah, sweet. And I was with him for about two months, and I got an, an audition uh, for King Kong, and I scored a role in King Kong. It was like four and a half months with Naomi Watson, Jack Black, <laughs> I had my own apartment in Wellington, and I made all this fucking money. It was weird as. And people, and there's all these great actors, and I'm like, I didn't know anything about acting. I remember Ray Wolf, we did this scene, and Kong's chasing us, and Peter's like, I want you to run, you yeah? So I just, like, ran, I just ran, you know? And Ray Wolf's running with me, and he's like, you gotta turn around, and I was like, why? He's like, so the camera can see you. I was like, why does the camera want to see me? I'm just running. He's like, no, Greg. They want to see you. Do you fear on your face? Just give them an angle, you know? Like, look where the camera is, run, give them a bit of an angle, you know? It's like, oh, okay. So I was just really, you know, didn't get it. But because I didn't have any pretensions, people were really yeah, good. Yeah, I was going to say. People were like, oh, hey, we'll help you out, buddy. I was going to say, there's no syndrome when you know you're an imposter. Right? Yeah, I was just like, <laughs> I know nothing. Yeah, you know? I'm lucky to be here. Yeah. I was sitting there, it was really funny, I was sitting there, and it really, it, that was the thing that really clicked it for me, I was sitting there, it was in my costume and shirt, and I just had some sunglasses on, I've always had good sunglasses, just cheap ones from the thing, but, you know, looking pretty cool, I was just sitting there, and Adrian Brody and uh, Jamie Bell were walking towards us, because we all shared the same area, and Adrian Brody stops about oh, five or six paces in front of me, and he goes, wow, that's a good look, and then he says to Jamie, isn't that a good look? He looks like George Clooney, you know. It's like, what? He goes, that's a really good look, man. Have you got a good agent? And I was like, I think so. And he's like, hang in there. And everyone's like, woo, George. <laughs> I was like, really? I don't look like George? But no, I don't look like George. But, you know, it was that thing. People have always just like, tell yeah, me yeah. something. And it's like, because I didn't have any pretension about it or I didn't like, oh, I'm this. I was just like, oh, okay, well, you seem to be pretty onto it. So if you think that, maybe that's true. So I've been lucky like that. I've listened to people, said yes. They put me in good positions and, you know, and I've managed to, and I'm affable, you know, and mm. I'm funny. And, and I'm a Pisces, so I'm pretty empathetic with people. So, you know, I get to, you know, people feel like they've, I'm a special friend because, mm. you know, I hear them. So if you had a business card, what would you put on it? Yeah, I've thought about that, eh? Mm. Um, I mean, I'm just assuming you don't have one. Well, I had, I, yeah, I used to have <laughs> You probably had I, one. Yeah, I mean, I was the <laughs> first person on the, the first artist on the West Coast to really buy into promo. And, and so I was probably the first one to, you know, have a business card and, you know, mm. and I influenced quite a lot of people like that because New Zealanders are all kind of like, oh, no, man, I'm not mm, going to you mm. know, do this. But then I went to the States. They're like, come on, man, pick your game up. And I was like, bro, back home, I'm fucking out there. And they're like, you know. <laughs> so I, lo I learned a lot from the Americans like that. But, mm. I, you know, yeah, I don't know. I'd sometimes like Greg Smith, human animal, mm. you know, just because I feel like, you know, I've got this, I don't know. I've got a purpose. I haven't got there yet. It's probably going to happen when I'm quite old, I think. I've done a lot of cool shit, but my sense is I haven't done the thing I'm meant to do. Mm -hmm. So I always felt like, and people have always told me, oh, you know, 
you're a healer or you're this. A lot of people have been telling me all my life I was Maori, but I just found out I'm Norwegian, which is quite cool, Scottish <laughs> Norwegian. So, you know, all these people who thought I was a Maori, I said, maybe I am a Maori and I could you know, get some land somewhere or something, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I remember being with Stan Walker and uh, Miriam Smith on Mount Zion and we were sitting there waiting to do the scene. Stan goes, oh, yeah, so... What's your fucker, Papa? And I was like, oh, I think I'm a Jew from Denmark. He's like, no, you're not. <laughs> Mary's going, no, you're a Maori. I was like, oh, I don't think so. And they're like, you're a Maori. And I've had that all my life. You're like, you're a Maori. You're a Maori. The Minister of Arts of Peter Tapsell picked me up in his, his limo, take me to this. He was opening a show I'd put together. Mm. And he said, Greg, what do you want to do? I said, oh, I'd like to go to the States, blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, right. Well, so we've got the Maori artist. Grant, and we got this other one, and I was like, small problem, not a Maori. And wow, it's interesting seeing Maori's blush because he went really red. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, no, not as sorry as I am. <laughs> Fuck, if I could go, yeah. I mean, I could lie, but yeah, you know. And so he was great anyway. He organized the grant for me, so it was pretty good. But yeah. I don't know, I always feel like I haven't quite tapped it yet, but there well, is something there. Weird how, um, how far did the acting take you? Like you're, you still turn out for things, but you're yeah. not, you know, pursuing that with a hundred percent. Like that's not your focus. No, it's not my focus anymore. But I'm actually that, over it. Where's that? So where's that taking you? You mentioned Mount Zion. Which yeah, yeah. Is a neat little film. Beautiful little film. Yeah. Love that film. Yeah. That, that that film was. If I never did anything else, Mount Zion was incredible because it was a full Maori production. Um, the crew were Maori. You know, everyone was Maori. Except me, Will Hall, and Mark Clare. But I think they thought I was Maori as well. Mm. I think Teara Pakahi, the director, he was pretty sure I was Maori. I didn't say anything to dissuade <laughs> him. Because I learned, actually, I told some kuia once that I wasn't a Maori, and they got so upset with me. And it was just real. I was just like, ah. Oh. So I've just kind of lied because it just, you know, I don't want to upset people. But I um, worked on that and it was just amazing. It was so amazing and just different from Pakia sort of production where it's all sort of feudal system, hierarchical, you know, you're not allowed to talk to the extras, the extras are not allowed to talk to the extras, you can't, you know, it's just bullshit. On Mount Zion, everybody was in there. So, you know, from the lowliest people to the director, we all sat and hung out and laughed and joked together. Mm. And I was like, this is how it should be. So when I eventually made some films myself, that's what I did. I sort of, you know, got everyone together, did the big breathing together, exhale together. And so we're all in the same place as a family. So we go forward on the thing. And I learned that from, from Māori. And so I learned probably, it informed me inform me an, another section of how I am that yeah I was right about that way that's that's a good way for me to, to be so I think acting taught me that but I got sick of the because it's just pretending to be somebody else mm. you just go and you pretend to be somebody else sometimes you're quite good at that person sometimes you're not you know and it, it's a bullshit system because it is a real boys club i mean it's, the me too thing has been awesome now because so many um strong uh female mm. you know writers and directors have come through but when, when i had my company we were bringing through you know uh you know female directors and writers and female uh, you know art and we just because they got such great energy mm. and they don't play so many games, you know. So I learned 
to kind of and the ego is in the back seat oh, rather than back seat, yeah. rather than at the wheel. So because everyone's got ego, everyone's got it, and you've got to have ego because it's healthy. Have, yeah, yeah. You just got to have a handle on it. You got, yeah, you've got, yeah. You got to know yeah. where to place it. I think the thing I learned about myself from drugs was because I'm an only child is my dad taught me to you know be my own best friend because he was a loner. So he taught me how to play games on my own with matchboxes and shit like that, you know. So I got really, really good at being on my own. And my mother told me that the voice inside me was my conscience and it was always right and I should always listen to it. So and when I started taking a lot of LSD and stuff, I, you know, would have these kind of things with myself. I'd be, you know, hours just me and me. And I kind of got to know me quite well. And I really liked me. I thought I was really interesting in fact i thought i was way more interesting than most other people so i kind of developed this really cool relationship with myself and you know i won't let myself get away with any shit but i crack myself up with my black humor you know like so i can mm. be alone for days and i mean i've got my beautiful wife and that but i can just be alone and i'll be in here and i'll be having some thought and then i'll just be like you moron you know and i'll just <laughs> laugh at myself and it just feels so good so i think drugs made me comfortable with myself mm. and then when i got success and glass and you know acting and film and that it just informed me more that what i was doing was right i was on the right path so that's why i feel now i this i seem to have done things in 20 year blocks you know I sort of grew up, did drugs to, to 20 and that, and then it was glass blowing to 40, and then it was sort of the film world now to 60. And so now I'm in this next block from 60 to 80, and it's story and voice. Mm. And I think through that, somehow, something will come. Mm. I don't know. I don't know. And, and, of course, you've been gathering the stories the whole time. Yeah. But... You know, I remember. I remember when I when I met you, I was like, I said, and you'd you'd sent me a couple of clips of you reading, you know, performing mm. some stories, and I think the first thing I said to you, either via email or, or when I met you, was, you know, half the battles won because you've got the voice. Mm. So when did you know you had the voice? Obviously, in acting, it comes out. Yeah. But before that, were there comments on that, and were you aware of the, the sort of, mana and grit? Of your voice, I wasn't the, actually. Yeah. I wasn't um, when I first started in the industry. Someone had said to me, "Oh, you got a really good voice. You should, you know, do some voice work." And they um, suggested this guy, a really lovely guy, John O'Leary, who had who had um, you know been in the voice industry, one of the the, the originals, and done a huge. And I so I went and met him, and and he went. Oh, I love your voice. And I was like, oh, thanks. He's no, seriously, he's like, been in this industry a long time. He's like, voices like that don't come along that much. Mm. You've got a great voice. He he said, so I think you could have a, you know, a real career in this industry. And he said, no, no I'd be, you know, really keen to, to train you up. And I was like, oh, okay. I said, but I got no money. And he said, look, I believe in you. I'll train you up. And when you've made some money, one day you can pay me back. And I was like, oh, that sounds like really good. And then, unfortunately, because I'd uh, inhaled all these really bad uh, batching glass, uh, all the chemicals oxidized, barium, and I'd inhaled it all really poorly because I never... So I, I, I started suffering from heavy metal poisoning. So my teeth started falling out, my hair started falling out. 
it's just basically I was just you know crapping out so once my teeth fell out I couldn't uh, you know do the thing so I forgot about the voice work and then um but then I'd be on set with somebody and then, you know, and the sound guys are always like, whoa, your voice, you know, wow. And people just kept commenting. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, got a great voice, yeah. And then it was about two years ago, two and a half years ago, I was visiting a mate of mine, great actor. He had this flash new car and he's driving. I was like, bro, what's that? And he's like, voice work. And I was like, no. He's like, seriously, voice work. You got to do it. So I rang up. Um, and that's one of those things you got to do it. So mm. ring, and so I rang up my my new agent, and she's like, "Yeah, come in and yeah." And there was this click. So then I just started doing it, and once I started doing it, and and relating to engineers and things like that who had heard a lot of voices, you know, and they were like, "You've got a really good voice, bro." You know, it is actually it is actually something, and and mm. it's natural, mm, mm. and you've got this thing with it and you know i i listen to them you know because it's when when people when you know that they're smart and they're good at what they do and they give you advice i always listen you know and i'm like oh no 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 i was like okay cool so you reckon i got it i must have it and then i thought back over the years of all the times i've done things and like i had this girlfriend and she was up here and i was in the coast and she saw like me um ring up and and sort of like talk her to sleep and so we do these kind of like you know like, pre-ASMR pre yeah yeah and so I was doing that for her and uh, a few nights or so and then uh, she was hanging out with her friends and they were all drinking wine they rang me she's like oh hi baby and I was like no, talk to me and I was like you're okay you know, so I was doing this kind of thing and the next minute all these girls start cracking up and I was like oh what she's like I'm really sorry but I've got like five girls here and I've just been telling them about your voice and, and I was like drop me and it's so embarrassing but they're like no and they're like I oh, know we love your voice <laughs> like, oh. so what sort of voice work have you got into doing like is it varied yeah it's really varied I've got the I've got the voice for the you know your farming mate mm. So, you know, I can sell you fucking sheep drench and shit like that. Pretty good. Uh, I was the voice of hunting and fishing, but they're in trouble now financially. Um, voice of AG. I've done a Spates thing. I've done quite a range so far. Um, got really close to being the voice of TV3. Um, at the moment, waiting, waiting to hear if I'm going to become the voice of Super Rugby Aotearoa for Sky. Did an incredible audition with them the other day. They're like, fuck, love your voice. And, I was like, and I'm fast. I work real fast. And I can, like, if it's a 15 second, I can bring it in 14 seconds, no problem. And that's a skill. It is and a skill. It's yeah, a real yeah, skill, you yeah, know. Yeah. And I, I can look at it and go, oh, let's drop one, drop one down to see the time. And they're like, whoa, man, 14 seconds, perfect. Well, mm. 28, you know, because you've got your stings either side and that. So quite quickly, I've become quite professional and people when I work with them the first time they're like oh wow so you must have been doing this a while and I was like yeah two years I'm like really I was like yeah yeah I just seem to be quite good at it I suppose but then doing this thing now with the the stories mm. that's really that's exciting for me because mm. because I can't see you know like because it's just opening out I feel really, really lucky that at my age, I'm nearly 63, 
I've cracked onto something. There's a lot of possibilities for me, mm. you know, like because you get uglier and shit, you know. It's like I could end up kind of like Stephen Hawking, but as long as I could talk, I could probably make money, you know. So it kind of seems like a natural progression for me. And now I trust my voice. Mm. I know that I've got the certain thing good with it that I can do it. So, and then starting to do these stories because I've always been a storyteller and really entertain people. But I want to, and I always thought I should write a book, but I don't want to embarrass my wife because, um, you know, she doesn't need that. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't need to hear that shit. And uh, so I was kind of trying to figure out what to do, you know. So telling the story with music kind of thing just seems to me to be the right way, you know. Um, there's a, I was going to say there's a component missing in this chat that we've really only hinted at, which is music. Oh, yeah. So let's go there first. Yes. So music's, you talked about being into music early on. And yep. I'm sitting in your studio, and the walls are lined with books, records, and CDs, as is the case for people that are into music. Yeah. Like, uh, and, and lifers still have the physical collection, even if they're listening to stuff online as well. For sure. So I take it this has never gone away. This never has gone been away. A li this isn't something that you invested in years down the track. These are no. things that you've carried with you. From eight years old, when I heard The Doors, Hello, I Love You, um, and The Monkees, and I used to dance to the radio, my mum's radiogram, Solomon King, She Wears My Ring, and... And, all that. and I, I just kind of I, I felt a freedom with it. Um, I tried to learn to play guitar, but I couldn't couldn't form chords. I just you know I tried to learn. I tried to learn to play all sorts of instruments. I've had instruments around me all my life. I still can't play them. I've got three yeah, great guitars yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Can't play a chord to <laughs> save myself. Got them all open tuned and got various effects pedals, and I can make a hell of a sound. But the, the music thing grew and grew and grew, and when I was on the coast, I, I was shown, I was given a guitar and shown open tuning. This guy really helped me, and I, and I had some real epiphanies with it. And so, typically when I get into something, I just go, whole hog. So I formed a band, and um, we got all this stuff going, and we sort of, you know, ebbed and flowed and that. And then one night, me and this guy that I was working with, we, we constructed this song called Dead Brother. And I did this uh, really heavily overblown sort of vocal to it. And I had this Hofner Beetle bass, which I'd modified and put a an oboe bridge on it. And I was playing it with a, a violin bow through these effects pedals. It made a horrific noise. And we recorded this thing. And then I got this grant to go up to Auckland. So I was up in Auckland and I was you know, blowing glass at Sunbeam Glass and listening to BFM. And I thought, Fuck, maybe I should just go and take my cassette to BFM, so I went into BFM and met Dominic Nola, who was the, um, she was the, uh, the program director. Yeah, program director. I went in there, I said, oh, I got this cassette. She says, okay, let's listen to it. She's like, this is fucking cool. We went into the, she made a, a copy. We went into the studio where Lisa Vanderati uh, was on air. She's like, Lisa, play this shit. Put it on, boom. Um, they started playing it five times a day. It got to number six in the charts, um, up there with the fall. Um, got a sign to Flying Nun. I remember Flying Nun gave me $500. Um, Chris Knox said, 
you better be fucking good because I've never got $500 out of them. <laughs> and Grant Fell said, they only gave us $200 for a video. Mm. And so like, it was like pressure, you know. <laughs> and then so quite a few people wanted me to go in the way of the skeptics, you know. And then, and I had, and this is one of the, one of the choices in my life that I will always regret, and there's very few of them. I was given the choice of two producers. Uh, Mark Turney from The Straw People and Matthew Hine from Spud. You heard of Spud? Mm -hmm. And when I'd come up previously to watch Sonic Youth, Spud opened for them, and Spud just blew Sonic Youth away, you know. But that night, uh, Glenn, the singer, and Matthew came up to me and they said, fuck, man, we're real fans of what you're doing. We'd love to work with you. Man, I should have gone with Spud. I really should have gone with Spud because, you know, I, they were incredible. But I liked the electronica thing, and the guy I was working with was really big on electronica. So we went with Mark, and Mark's a lovely guy and that, but it was just, yeah, watered it down. And, you know, flying them were really good about it. We went for two Just Juice Awards, you know, but we were up against the Cake Kitchen and things like that, you know, the Jeffries Brothers and that. Mm. And, and, of course, they got it, and I didn't. And um, and while I was away, I did get to do one thing that was a, a thing. I was blowing glass. I was making a beautiful bowl, and my song came on the radio. I was just about to finish the bowl. I thought, fuck no, I'm going to keep it going. So I reheated it a few times, and I kind of like kept working my bowl, listening to my song, and I'm like, well, <laughs> this is that, you know? This is it. Um, and so, you know, that was great. But it's, while like, it's like a new version of one of those LSD conversations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> while I was away, though, um, and, we're, and my wife had, um, from the coast was up here, we were up doing something, and we had this guy looking after the place, uh, the local fucking gang came and stole all our gear, broke into our studio, stole everything. So I thought, crossroad. Life has taken away all my musical stuff. Just when I was cracking into it really well and left me with glass. So I thought, oh, well, it's glass, you know. And But all the time... I all the ideas I had. I remember the first time I saw the Happy Mondays on TV, doing tart tart. I was like, assholes, that's my shit, <laughs> you know. And I've always kind of like had that thing, like the fall. Love Marky Smith, but I was doing that, you know. And I was like, so all through my life, I'm like, damn, I should have kept doing it. Damn, I should have kept doing it. So now I'm at this point that I've got all this gear. I got groove boxes and shit mm. and in a really not Brian Eno non-musician sort of way mm. I'm creating sound beds which I can talk over so that's quite exciting mm. so the, the music without music I think I don't know what sort of person I'd be because it is actually it is like my soul and you have that thing which I think all of us have that you know those of us that really love music and dedicate too much of our income and our life to it uh, you know yes obviously we have there's a snob factor there always is we get accused of it at least but you know just looking through your records and the cds that are in front of me you listen to everything everything all sorts of things and yep. i know that from conversations we've had and and things that i've seen you post and listening to your radio show that you do and stuff um but yeah you're into it's you know yes i know from talking to you that you know the psychedelic blues stuff is a thing it's that cool. you dig, dig and you know yeah. um but you're into all sorts of stuff yes yeah. you know sinatra on the wall next to yep. the rolling stones next to Jimi hendrix yep. love sinatra and yeah. d martin yeah and you know george shearing 
beautiful, you know, uh, Martin Denny. Yeah, yeah. You know, that lounge exotic. But then you're oh. all big into like Beefheart, Falakuti, you know, yeah. that sort of stuff no. too, which, yeah. which, which, you know, lots, I am too. Yeah, so yeah. It's and Tackhead, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Saw Tackhead a couple of times, you know, yeah. Audioactive. I was never into reggae. Right. Although, although this jump seaman um, back in the 70s, he, he jumped ship here in Auckland. He had the first two, he had Catch a Fire and Natty mm, Dread. Mm. And all my mates just went gaga over it. And I was, I was like, it's okay, but I didn't like it. I never bought reggae. But then I was asked to join KFM when it started. And that was a reggae downbeat station. So I had to learn about reggae. So I bought the, the you know... Oh, yeah, yeah, the Rough Guide to Reggae. Yeah, yeah. bought the Rough Guide to Reggae and talked to fellow DJs and explored reggae. Bought reggae. Bought mm. shit tons of reggae. Just went right through King Cubby, mm. you know, and then all those dudes, Joe Gibbs, and then, and then you know, like the singers, uh, Leroy Smart, mm. you know, and, and I developed a beautiful appreciation for that incredible music, and Scar, mm. and, you know, rock steady and, and, you know, hung out with Dubhead, and, you know, Stinky Jim, and those dudes, and, and yeah, like, really appreciate this stuff, I hardly play any of it now, I do put a little bit on my shows, but I feel like I've I've sort of done it. I know it. Yeah. But I love... It's funny, though. It yeah. comes back. It like, comes back. You know, oh, yeah. I, I was sort of quite big into good rego. Like, good rego is fantastic. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. And yeah. I, Which is true of any genre, of yes. course. Um, the, the good stuff is amazing. And, you know, you think about when disco had a bad name, that's because the good disco was around for a whole lot longer and yeah. sounded a bit different. Great disco. So, yeah. And... Um, you know, I was into reggae for a while, and then I think I probably got a reputation for shitting on so much mediocre local reggae that it, it was a lot too. Yeah, and there still is. And there still good, is, and it killed my taste for listening to anything, even the really good stuff. Yeah. Um, and then in lockdown, I listened to almost exclusively reggae. Really? Like Ryback started buying stuff again, like ordering, you know, bought bought some reggae um, records of Grant Smithies, bought. You know, consulted people like that. that yeah, yeah, know, yeah. You know, and yeah, got, good with the record, got really into it. And now I've I'm out the other side again for a little bit. Yep. Um, but it's much more in my in my sort of selector base than it was for a while. So it does happen. It does. Well, uh, the the latest uh, Lee Perry. I mean, I've always stuck with Lee Perry because mm. I love his stuff mm. with Adrian Sherwood. I mean, there's some brilliant stuff there. But this latest one, Rainford and Heavy Rain. Really, really oh, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, really, really good, good stuff, eh? And yeah. so, you know, so stuff like that. He's kind of reggae's Brian Eno, really. He is reggae's Brian. And is that heck up the warm dreads yeah, on it yeah, with yeah, Eno? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good track. I'm just actually yeah. going to playlist another track. And I've been getting into jazz, Shabaka yeah. Hutchings, yeah, you know, yeah. and Commodus Coming, Sons of Kevin. Yeah, yeah, all that British stuff is amazing at the moment. Really yeah. good shit, man. Yeah. So that's, but yeah, you know what it's like. You, you, you kind yeah. of go into it and then you start to discovering stuff is the, I don't know there's a joy mm. I don't think it'll ever get old a joy of stuff you know it's like um, we talked about psychedelic blues um, the latest album from the Dream Syndicate The Universe Within and I opened two shows back with The Regulators 20, 20 minute track I was reading a, on, on the thing the 20 best psychedelic albums and that album's included mm, in it mm. it is amazing and it's like once again old dudes mm. I was like oh, I love it I remember seeing Wire um, and they're in their 50s and they played uh, they played fuck this look quite a while back 2005 or something like that they played 
Galatos or something. The mint chicks were the, um, the, the Nielsen brothers going bananas up the front. And it was when Y were doing stuff uh, from, it was like spent and it was like just so heavy and just, and I just like old guys playing crucial music. And I was like, there's hope for me yet. It's okay. Because <laughs> you know, when I was a kid, if you're over 20, it was yeah. over. Yeah, yeah. It was over. You, you didn't have any credibility. Fortunately, now, us old white guys, there's a chance. <laughs> there's a chance. <laughs> I remember feeling that, though, when I went to um, Laneway two years ago, and yep. I've only ever been to two Laneways, the very first one, and then the one two years ago. And I was there on a whim, and there wasn't much I wanted to see. And I was just, it was a nice day, though, and I was enjoying cruising around. And then in the middle of the afternoon, the Dead Sea played. Oh, oh. And, yeah, you know, and it was just like, here's some old guys, and you use the beautiful term then, crucial music. Crucial. And they just didn't give a fuck whether Brilliant. anyone was on board or not. Yep. But you could see them, you know, it was a mixture of, you know, I saw people like Russell Brown and that there who were obviously going to be there and yeah, yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and Andrew Moore and stuff like that. But, you could see them turning people to their sound as it was happening because there were kids there going, what the fuck what is the this? Fuck? But being instantly open to it yes. because it didn't matter who it was. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, not to be ageist, there were probably kids there that knew everything about them as well Yeah. because of the internet. Um, and so they knew everything about them. But I just remember going, and I've seen the Dead Sea a bunch of times and I love them, but I just thought, you know, of all the places to see them, it was sort of perfectly incongruous. It, it was, was perfectly like, you know, I missed that one, but I remember... Um, uh, Joost Langveld yeah. was standing there too and, he, and I was telling him he's like the fuck I said who did you like he's like well the Dead Sea were really yeah. good it was so wrong that it was right so wrong yeah. that it was right I yeah. remember seeing them open for Sonic Youth in Christchurch mm. and uh, they are only like halfway in their set and Bruce Russell got upset about <laughs> something and he just walked off mm. and I remember Michael Morley uh, like you know, Robbie Yates still playing, <laughs> and they kept looking to see if Bruce was coming back. Bruce didn't come back, and they were like, "Oh, I think that's us." <laughs> and I was like, "Wow!" I always remember that. I was like, "Wow, that took balls." I'm a big fan of um, Michael Morley's Gate stuff, and yeah, I haven't oh, really listened so to that. Good. And I remember, and this was a while ago, probably 15 years ago or so, because I was writing a review for New Zealand Musician, which which I've only done a couple of stints at way back and then I got back into it again in the early to mid 2000s and anyway so they sent me this gate album and I absolutely loved it and I wrote a review of it and must have been an email address on a press release or whatever I don't usually do this but I just sent him an email and just said hey I really dug your album and this is a review of it for New Zealand Musician and here it is and for what it's worth and he wrote back to me and said something like um, yeah, thanks for that. I shouldn't imagine anyone in New Zealand will care at all. And hmm. it doesn't, you know, it yeah. really doesn't bother me, but I appreciate your effort. Yeah, yeah. And I just thought that's a fantastic response because there's a guy just doing it just because doing he it. wants to do it. Yeah. And he wasn't rude to me. He, he you know, yeah. it wouldn't have mattered if he was, but he no. wasn't. He acknowledged that, hey, cool, thanks for sending this to me. I'm glad you liked it. But his point was, this isn't going to help me at all. Yeah. And I don't really care. Yeah. And I thought that was fantastic. Well, I, I thought that... You know, in the 80s, that whole cassette thing, um, you know, that uh, expressway, you know, mm. 
I mean, how those guys, like no one really outside of Port Chalmers and a little few spots, no one knew about, you know, all those expressway artists and that. Yeah, in Chicago, and spread that fucking yeah. going nuts over them. And that really influenced me, that, because we were... Because we, we were hanging out a little bit and um, got to, you know, hang out with... Um, I remember one night we, we were there, me and my my bro, um, Don, we were having a show down there. And uh, at Jen McCoy, uh, David Kilgore's partner, she running this gallery. And we're staying with David. And so I, I got to meet, you know, Bob. And Bob Scott turned me on to Popple Var, which was amazing. And mm. then... Hamish didn't. Hamish was there, but I got you know hung out with Shane Cutter and, and Chris Hazelwood and and I remember we were at at this thing and it was I was sitting there with David Kilgore, Shane Cutter, Chris Hazelwood, Robert Scott, and a couple of other people. I was like, this is like the cream yeah. of New Zealand guitar thing, and yet, fuck all people really sort of knew or cared, you yeah. know. And, you know, like when I remember when the Great Unwashed toured and played in Westport, you know, like, you know, 20, 30 people turned up and that was it. Mm. Although I did see uh, Roy Harper play in the Regent Theatre and only five people turned up. <laughs> oh, my favourite time ever seeing Boulder Space was when they played to me and my mate Matt, who did the painting on my book cover, and uh, two other people oh. in Napier. Oh, and they were, they were so just, good. and it was literally the four of us yep. in the audience, and they were fucking phenomenal. Oh. And we were on university holidays, and we were bored in Hawke's Bay. What can we do? Our oh, Boulder Space are playing tonight in Napier. We have to go and see them. You have to. Four people, and they gave it their all. That's and so I good, just eh? feel like I saw something so special that night. You would that, have, eh? uh, They're such a big. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I saw them a bunch of times. Yeah. Always great. Always great. Always great. Always some version of great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there was some I remember. sloppiness and that was also wonderful. One night they played at the power station with uh, HDU opening and uh, and HDU were really kicking it. Mm. I think they just um, recorded uh, with Steve Albini and they were on fire and Bales of Space, and any band, you know, when you've got your opening band who's mm. fucking really punching above mm. their weight, the so Bales of Space just came on, and, and really, um, I, I was always into Alistair Parker, mm. Just, mm. but really, it's John Hal Wilson. Oh, for sure. I can't wait till he releases I his know, album. He keeps saying he's going to fucking... I know, I think so there's, a, there's a bunch John. of us sort of... <laughs> I know, it's like, please release it. Sort of cheerleading from yeah. the sides on that. Oh, one. I have been too, Just you know. Want to see it happen. Want to see it happen. Well, I mean, mm. he was the guitarist and the skeptics. Mm, mm. I couldn't figure out how he could play bass, but then you watch him play it. That just those bass lines just hold it together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but there's something else. There's something else I about mean, when it. I mean, when I was first into Boulder Space and, and watching them, I had, happily admit I had no idea who the skeptics were. So I just knew him as the bass player from Boulder Space, and I just thought he was an incredible but, but, um, bass player. Yeah. And so there was a whole other thing to find that out. Yeah. You know, and that was cool. <sighs> and it made sense in the sense that he plays the bass not like a bass player, but right. so perfectly. So perfect. For Boulder Space. Yeah. You know, for, because I remember I, I played a about because the album that I really love was Solar Three. It's yeah, just, it just yeah. came together. Yeah. Just yeah. everything came together yeah. so perfectly. I mean, Robot World and all that's all great. Sure. But Solar Three. Yeah. And I played it to this old friend of mine. He was in the seventies, and you know it's not the sort of music he would like. And I and I was like about you know Alistair, and it was Titus, and it was all this washes of guitar. Mm. And he listened to it. He was very patient with me, and he said, "I like the bass guitarist." <laughs> and I and I was like, "Yeah, yeah." But he goes. 
bass guitarist is really good. <laughs> no, I'm saying, I mean, I, I like all this stuff, but Solar 3 and Wemo are the oh, two that oh, I yeah. just used to alternate. Yeah, untied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so oh. good. So good. So you, and so you have done radio shows, continue yep. to do them, yep. and you've also, you have done some DJing out. Like yeah, you played yeah. some records at Golden Dawn. Yeah, I've got that club. Yeah. I, I did that a few times. Matthew yeah. was Matthew Corley was really really good to me. I, I fronted up there one afternoon and said to Matthew, "Oh hi." Let me guess, it happened by fluke. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> hi Matthew, I you know play a few tunes and he's like, "Oh yeah," and I said, "Yeah." He said, "Who do you like?" And I, I rattled off a few things. He's like, oh, "Okay, we'll give you a go." And then I, I, I went and did the gig there, and he was there, and he he was sitting next to me there, and um, about three songs, and he goes. Who's this? And I said, oh, this is a, a, a dub version of The Cure. He's like, I'm a massive Cure fan. I have never heard it. I was like, oh, it's on the faith, you know, da-da-da. He's like, okay. And about two or three tracks, it goes, who's this? And I was like, oh, da-da-da. And then the th he's like, fuck, I'm going to have to stop doing this, but really, who's this? <laughs> and so he's like, I'm a fan. And so for a while there, I played once a month. And it gave me massive confidence because mm. it was a great place to play. It was a great place to play, and the kind of real cream of alternative mm. DJs was there. Mm. But I didn't like playing late to all the drunks. Oh, right, I never got to do that. Fucking really pushed me off. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and the drunk girls just I love playing. I love playing early. Early. And I love playing the middle set too, but I love yeah. which is the two that I did. Yeah, and yeah, that was early. Fun. Early, early I, was fun. I would always do early, and I would yeah. always. They would offer me Friday nights and Saturday. I was like, nah, play Wednesday or Thursday evenings, yeah. you know. And I, I, now I only play at um, Hallatow mm -hmm. out at Clevedon. Mm. I, I played um, at the Hallatow Riverhead there, but it's t and, and no, you know. I love you, Hallatel, but <laughs> but I've even said to them, it's too cliquey out there. Mm -hmm. It's all, everybody's sort of like you know they all got like fucking fade haircuts and they're all kind of like dressed and they, they just want some sort of beat match shit. And oh, I fucking don't beat match. Mm. I play one good tune after another that you like that I like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And Matthew was Matthew Corley was always like Greg. We hire you because you've got great taste. Don't listen to what anyone says. We want you to play exactly what you want. Yeah. And that's what I do out at Hallatow. I mean, and, and Dub and Stinky Jim play out there. Murray Kamek plays out there. And, you know, Dub and Stinky Jim play reggae. And, you know, Murray yeah. Kamek plays soul disco and, soul, you know. Yeah. I play country, soul, jazz, blues, rock. Um, I play Tom Jones, mm. you know. Uh, you know, you can play Tom Jones and Marlon Williams together, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and they love me out there. They're like, oh, you're here. Yes. And, you know, and the staff are like, what's this track worth? And I just, I love that. But there's not many places that I'd like to play because mm. I'm not that into the audience. Yeah, yeah, you know, I felt the same thing. Audiences are like, audiences per se. If you get them in an afternoon, they haven't drunk too much, quite nice. But once they start getting liquored up, they get kind of like, oh, well, we're in charge here. And there'd be, I mean, there'd be the other thing is, the other side of it is there'd be like proper DJs that would be annoyed with people like us because we, <laughs> you know, like a proper DJ yep. um, does their job and yeah. does and will bend to suit oh, and, yeah. and will play the hits or play, play what's in. required yep. and enjoy the moment when they get to put in something for themselves. So but I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, I've gone and played records in bars over the years on and off and at places because I've wanted to put on something that's about what I'm into. Yeah. And I don't want to make people walk from the bar or put them off and I'm really 
if there's a dance floor, I'll honour it and all of that. But I'm actually there to play tunes I want to play, which yeah. is what was so perfect about Golden Dawn. They just wanted good music. They just wanted good music, you know. And, and they wanted it to keep going yeah, for, yeah. The, for the night. They didn't want any hiccups. Yeah, and that, that was lovely. So yeah. that gave me a lot of confidence. Yeah. I loved it there. It was really, really cool. Mm. And, I, and I saw some great acts there. I remember one night, I was, um, uh, Luke, Luke Buddha and um, Samuel Flynn Scott were there with their partners. And... Um, you know, like you don't want to. I thought, well, I'm going to play. I so I played quite an obscure Luke Buddha track, you know, hoping because <laughs> I was like a bit of fanboy, mm. hoping that he'd be like, you know, mm. totally ignored me. <laughs> and then I I played there for the uh, Arctic Monkeys. It was oh, a really yeah. quiet night, and the Arctic Monkeys came in, and, and Matthew had said, oh, the Arctic Monkeys will probably come in. Um, so you know, be aware of that. I was like, yeah, and they came and they sat next to me. And, I wanted to, I wasn't, you know, I love that song, You Look Good on the Dance Floor and that, but, you know, and I wanted to kind of like, so I thought I'd play a couple of things that they might like, but the, they completely blanked me. So I was like, oh, well, fuck that. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, trying to play for other people, yeah, it is, you've got you to gotta be true to yourself. Play, and that's why my radio show, which I do out of here now, uh, the f freedom. And mm. I'm, I'm really loving the Mixcloud community because... Although it's primarily, you know, house, trance, techno, there's a really thriving group of people that are really into indie and that. Most yeah. of them are from Serbia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so your radio show, yeah. you put that on together out here. Do you do it like, is it something you construct over time or is it something you like to do in a session still, like it's a live thing? No, I construct it over okay. time now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was doing it... Uh, weekly mm. you know, i did it for about 18 years weekly mm. um yeah i would just go in and play yeah yeah yeah. you know and then i started stretching out a bit more and then when kfm changed the um john greet the the founder um he said to me greg i want you to actually because he, he in the early days i'd be playing like i'd play some reggae track and then i'd play king crimson <laughs> he was like i just don't I just can't see the King Crimson going down, Greg. And I was like, oh, you know, play Frank Zappa or something like that. He's like, oh. But then, you know, like 15, 16 years later, he's like, I think it's time to start playing King Crimson, shit like <laughs> that. And so he gave me free reign. So in the last couple of years of the KFM thing, before it's revamped again, mm. um, I really stretched out and I really started to find myself and what I was doing. And now the shows that I'm doing, I, and I do them every three or four weeks whenever I feel right, and I spend quite a bit of time, I make copious notes, and I put them in sets, and I change it around, and then on the day I might even change it again, because mm. I like that thing. But I build a kind of a, a selection that's really, really wide-ranging. And my fans just fucking love it, because... They can, yeah, and there's a lot of shows that are just post-punk or this or this or this, but there's not that many that are just wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, and I love that. And I've got <clears throat> probably 150 real dedicated fans that, I mean, my latest show is three and a half hours. It's we have to fucking wade through mm, it, you know. Mm. I've got one friend at the moment. He's on his eighth listen i'm waiting for him to message me because he usually gets me these huge messages telling me all this stuff he likes but he's like they're chomping through it and i get they go i'm halfway through i'm gonna be another session tomorrow i love that because i'm giving yeah. a i'm sort of giving an encyclopedia of sound to people and a lot of it they're rediscovering an artist or i didn't know that artist but i'd heard of him sort of thing or and i you know it's new artists and you know i just try to make it 
and but it's it is a real it's an artistic construction and i as you can see i get really passionate mm, about it. Mm. i really love it out of everything i do it is the most important to me i'm probably the most sensitive about it if someone said oh you didn't really like in that film i was like oh, i couldn't really give a fuck i got paid but if someone said, oh, I didn't really dig your show, I'd be like, oh, man, what was the matter with it? I'd be really, you know, it would worry me. Mm, it would mm, bother me. I'd want to fix that. I'd want to fix that, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, and I would think about it a mm. lot, and I'd be really concerned. And, yeah, so I'm real sensitive to it. So that indicates to me that it's real. It's fully real that to you me. you care about yeah, it? Yeah, I care. I care a lot. And, and I just hope to, with, with Mixcloud, it's great. I've I got an audience, and they like me. Mm. And and I love giving them stuff, and I just yeah, it's neat. I, people have suggested that I do the subscription and that, but I don't want to put money in the way. You start putting money in the way, it's just like well, it becomes money. Mm. It's like I said to you about the mm. work. Mm. I love to give my work away, give it away, and people value it hugely. And I I gave a piece to someone twenty years ago, and they like they still wear it. This was a real simple little thing, you know. But they wear it, and they're like, pretty much every day I think of you. It's like, yeah. fuck, well, you can't buy that. No, you can't. When they think of you nicely. <laughs> you mm. can't buy that, you know. And so I just recently, uh, this is Mike Weston. Mm. Mike Weston's partner, Billy. She's an arts, oh, she travels the world kind of art theory and such. She's mm. quite an amazing woman. She'd seen a couple of pics of my stuff, and she said, I really love your stuff. And I was like, I'd really like to gift you a piece. And she's like, seriously. She came around, chose this amazing piece. So good. I could, it was a piece that you can hold in your hand when you're speaking mm. kind of thing. And, you know, like, she, she just, she's like, I think this is wonderful that you're gifting it. She said, because I've been talking with people about koha and what it means and and, and how it's actually a way forward. Jesus, mm. because money just gets in the way and it puts this kind of stamp of value on it. I bought that for this. Mm. Not it means this. I paid this. So if you take out the paid, then there's no chance of them to... And then it's about the heart. So I don't need the money. Fortunately, my wife and I are fine, so I don't need money. And I've got pretty much all the materials, and it's just my time, and I have to play music, and I make shit. And so giving it away, which I've always done, is just a beautiful thing. And I've come back to it recently, and I just gifted a piece to a lovely New Zealand artist that lives in New York. Uh, Sarah Price makes, Claire Price makes beautiful big paintings. And she's like, I fucking love your work. And I said, like, I want to give you a piece. And <gasps> I was like, here's mm. three pictures. She's like, that one. I sent it. She just paid for the postage and and then she will wear it mm. and it will glow on her and people will go, whoa. And she'll go, Greg Smith. Da da. There you go. That's, you know, that's it. That, that's you, this is as good as you get, I reckon. Are you worried that you're going to get <clears throat> 50 or 60 requests after people hear this? pieces of I don't mind <laughs> I've probably got 50 or 60 i got hundreds really <laughs> my wife and I have talked about it because um, yeah I do just really want to give them away I've got two galleries um, mm. Bob Scott's gallery in mm. Port Chalmers because I just love Bob and, 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 and Dallas and so yeah I'm supporting them and an old friend of mine's got a gallery in uh, Mapua so I mean I had you know all the top galleries and I did all that I fucking hate that shit gallery owners mostly 
Ugh. And they really didn't like, a lot of them didn't like me. Unfortunately, there was a gallery in Queenstown, really top gallery, who loved me. Gave me solo shows. I, you know, made really big pieces. I remember one show there, we sold three massive pieces to these people that owned Goldsmiths Bank in, in the UK. And, you know, so they, people have always, you know, there's always been someone that's dug what I am, but the mainstream of galleries freaked out by me. You know, it was mm. too much for them. And I didn't like them because they have no taste. You know, and a lot of the people that buy your work have got no taste. They've just got money. And, oh, fuck. I remember at one show, these people, I just loathed them on sight. And they came up and they started wanking on about all their art collection and shit. And that they wanted to buy one of my pieces. And I had a few wines or something. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to sell it to you. And they're like, what? I was like, look, I'm sorry, but I don't like you. And I don't want you to have my work, so I'm not going to sell it to you. I was so offended. People was like, you can't say that. And I was like, well, really, I can because I made the work. And if my work went to the base, it would die there. It would die in their house. Yuck. It's not fair. <laughs> I don't want my work to go there. It's my baby. It's not going. Mm. And, and um, that was a bit uncompromising for some people, but oh, that's my principle. You know, like I make work and sometimes I'm a conduit. Mm. I've been taught by stone carvers. I know that you make yourself a conduit and the spirit, the wairua, comes through you, through your hands and into the piece. Not every piece, but that happens. And I've had a lot of things. I've had clairvoyance and people come to me and say, you've got this piece somewhere and they'd find it. And this this is going to do this. And I was like, take it. You know, it's sweet. Um, so my, my, my best work's alive. And that's why I, if I can keep it alive by giving it to the right person, then it will stay alive mm. and it will and it will do good things for them. And I always say to them, look, if you get to a point where you're not wearing it anymore and it doesn't mean anything anymore, then it's done its job and you should give it to somebody else. Oh, I couldn't give it to somebody else. Rejuvenate well, it. Yeah. Well, you're just going to put it in your thing. It's going to die in there. You've mm. got a corpse. Mm. Bring it out. Give it a rub. Give it to someone. And how would I know who to give it to? Follow your intuition. You'll go, oh, that person, boom. That's how it goes. So I'm, fortunately, now I can do that because I don't have to worry about the money. So I can give it. And I don't think a whole lot of people are going to rush in here and go, oh, I want that one. <laughs> but I am, I'm really open. If you really want my work, just contact me. It's all right. <laughs> um, shall we finish by talking about yes. the story stuff again? Yes. So you've you've got a few different things going on with that. So mm. you've been doing the radio show stuff, and then you sent out a couple into the world where you kind of were doing these little curated um, story sequences where you'd have a song or two and a story in the middle. Yeah. There was an autobiographical tale. Yes. It was a, a, about a 10-minute piece, yeah. about a 5 to 10-minute piece, a little short story that was based on a truth yeah, something yeah. from your past so you did that for a bit and you're also working on doing some stories where there is the bedrock of music where yeah, you're basically yeah. a spoken word performer yeah. over top of music yeah. and you're collaborating as well mm. with other people on that yeah I'm collaborating else. with yeah. Francis Hunt who yeah. was a guitarist from Pumpkinhead yeah, yeah, yeah. and I've, I've, he did a lot of my uh, when I made films he did my soundtracks and he's amazing and we've got a thing together and we kind of know that there's something we can do together mm. but I am, there's only so many stories. I actually got a lot, but there are, the, you know, it's a finite thing. 
and I've been compiling them. There well, was... it's the same thing with you. You want them to ring true, so yeah. you don't want to get to the point where you could write one yeah. and tell it, and you could do a good performance, but you're going to know, I'm phoning this one in, in yeah, some yeah. sense. Like, I can nail the performance, but the writing's phoned in. I, ha- I don't actually mean this one. That's this true. one's not real, right? And that's not That's yet. why I pulled yeah. back. Yeah. I mean, I did those first two, yeah. and they both, and I, you know, the first one was just that, just quite anecdotal, and the second one was like a little a bit more story. yeah themed. Yeah. Mm. You know, now I have got some stories that are so fucking terrifying. <laughs> they are real, like they are uh, really. There's some shit that I've experienced that, and I'm there's a time and a place for them, and so I I think with my age I've realised that you know, and I said this to Francis is like I'm not in a hurry. Because this is the exciting part of creating when you're at the beginning. And most people at the beginning, you ra- it's so exciting, but you race through it and you get to the part that's not the beginning. You get to the next part. And the beginning never comes again. You know, like a band spends two years living in poverty, writes some songs, bangs it out in their bedroom, puts it out. It just goes mega. Mm. Then they have to follow it up. Now, the following it up and maintaining... That thing is completely different to the two years coming up. And that two years coming up, that's the gold. Unfortunately, mm. it's poverty and blah, blah, blah. But that's where it is. So I recognize that. So I'm in that bit now. And so instead of racing out, because a lot of people are like, when's your next story coming out? When's your next story? Mm. And I'm like, I'm holding back. Because I want to make sure when I when I drop these stories in whatever format I do, it's just right. Because you only really get to tell them once mm. really well, you know, and in a format that's going to be out to the world. Mm. And so I want to make sure. So I'm compiling all my stories and anecdotes and things. And I always thought I'd put it in a book form. But then you suggested to me when, when I met mm. you in of a more of a digital sort of thing. Mm. And, mm. and really, that was great for me. And I thank you for that because... It was like you, you're you one of those people like, hey, you should do this. And I was like, yeah, mm. I should. <laughs> and because and everything kind of went click, 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 click. So you're part of me like that too because cool. you gave me that well, thing. And, confidence, you know? <laughs> and it's not me trying to tie up the publishing end of things for myself. No, that's, no, no. Uh, that's just, I'm a big um, believer in the idea that things find their format. You yeah. Know, like I do these podcast interviews. They're not feature articles. They're not documentaries. But they're a little. They are a version of that. Yeah. But they exist in the realm for podcasts because that's the best space for them. Having yeah. a nice loose conversation with someone that's, I've done a bit of research. I've I've chosen the person and yep. I know what I want to ask them. Yep. But I'm also really open for it to go wherever. So I don't want like five thousand word deadline or eight hundred word deadline because I don't want to turn around something that isn't going to fit the format one day. Yeah. This is always the format is loose enough in this way that it's always going to work. Gives that kind of freedom. And I I love that, you Mm. know, and that's that thing because there there is an aspect of us as creators to want to get better. But I mentioned this man before, uh, Peter Tennant, um, great, just, I mean, I could tell stories about him, but one thing that he was one of the, Colin McCann, he's one of the, Peter was part of the, the edge of the group, the Christchurch group of artists, you know, Rita Angus, Bill Sutton, all them. Um, he, but Peter was a worker and he worked on the docks. I mean, they came around one day to see what Peter was doing. They hadn't seen him for months. They went to his, uh, th- you know, his fucking studio. 
he was making these massive fucking action paintings. Now, he didn't know about Pollock or Enoch. He's just in his own bubble. And they were like, what? This is like Pollock. And, and they were just raving about it. When he left, he pulled them all down, scrunched them up, burnt them. Never mm. did that again. Mm. Colin McCann, he was a brilliant drawer. Colin McCann rang him up and said, Pete, come up to Auckland. I'll get you a job uh, teaching drawing at, um, you know, at the university. You know, I've got the, you know. He said, fuck you, Colin, you alcoholic wife-beating cunt. There was no way I'll have anything to do with you and your shitty little life. That summed up Pete. When he realised that he, when he was drawing, he did pontalism and that. When he realised that it was just too good, he started doing it with his left which he was shitty at. Mm. And he drew with his left for the rest of his life because he had to learn how to do it. It's like Picasso, that all the great artists are trying to go back to when they didn't have structure, when they didn't have the world of art. They just had themselves and their muse and they went, wow. So I've been fortunate to have a lot of older people that have shown me you don't have to end up being like that. And glass, I was always loose with glass. You know, I'm loose with acting. Mm. I'm just loose. And I realise loose is good. And so, yeah, I'm going to keep being loose and I'm not in a hurry. So with the voice and the stories, I'm taking my time. I'm going to get it right and I'm going to, so that people can really, really get the full kind of warmth of it. And that's exciting. I'm not in a hurry. As long as I don't die in the next couple of years, I should be fine should be able to get it out there but you know but yeah so yeah well we've had a great chat um, well i've is, talked is there is there um well i've listened and i've loved it and that's that's a massive component of this is there um anything that you wanted to mention that i didn't bring up or that you would anything else you, we don't have to stop now I no, just no, no, no. we've um, had a good chat is there anything else you want to i think i've been i gotta say that um Women have been um, the saviour throughout my life. Um, you know, this, all the best things that pretty much have happened to me have come about via women. Um, I've always been really... Uh, I've, yeah, I've got a strong feminine component. Um, so I was always really drawn to women. Women have taught me things. Uh, and through their eyes, I've seen how disgusting males are. Mm just the base nature of them like i've saved women from being raped i've saved women from being you know like physically i mean i was at a party once and it just ended up there was like five guys left and the woman who lived there and i wasn't paying any attention to her she was a lovely woman and she came up to me but i noticed the guys were all like hitting on and they were just drunk and me and she came up to me she said look she said these guys are she said i need to go to bed she said i can't trust these guys she said, you know, I know I'm going to go and then one of them's just going to come in. She said, do you think that you could come to bed with me and sort of, you know, and sort of keep them away? And I was like, absolutely. And so we went there and they were all like, well, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm just going to bed now, you know. And so they are all pissed off. And then one of them tried to come in. I was like, excuse me? Nah, can't do this, you know. So I've really seen the world from a woman's point of view, and you know, and, and I'm I'm really enjoying the strength of woman 
coming and you know and finding their voice because we've held them down so long mm -hmm. and we're just we shouldn't be running this fucking world it should be a matriarchy not a patriarchy i read this book called the daughters of the copper woman by Anne cameron and it's set in queen charlotte island and it's when the spanish first made contact with these tribes up there and it was a matriarchal society and they they said to the men, no, 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 it's the other way around. And so the men usurped the woman, but they weren't smart enough to create a structure, so they just took on the female structure and ran it poorly. And that's how I feel like this planet has been run. Mm -hmm. it's, the structure is, is there to, for it to be run beautifully and naturally, but men have been just fucking misappropriating it and running it wrong. So I'm really keen to see women you know, rise up and take their strength. And as I've said to a lot of men, the best type of love and care you can get is from a woman when they give it freely. You can coerce them and can put them into situations where they feel like they must give you these things. And I've been reading Art, Sex, Music by uh, Cozy Fantuti. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, like, Genesis was an asshole, mm. an absolute mm. asshole. She made throbbing gristle. She did all that stuff, but, you know, and yet she did it trying to keep his ego together. And I just see that all the time, you know. Like, my wife's the boss. She's in charge. She has my best wishes paramount to her. Mm -hmm. So I have seen no reason to argue with her about anything, you know. And I just think if we could trust women more and give them their head and encourage them and support them more, we'd be a better society. So that's, that's my thing. Go woman. This is a good place. This is a good place. <laughs> yeah. Hey, that's nice. Okay, um, thanks for taking the time to listen to uh, the podcast that uh, Simon and I have done. I uh, hope you enjoyed it. So here's a little story, it's a little slice. Throughout my life, I've uh, had people that have just kind of popped out of the ether and offered me various forms of uh, spiritual advancement or enlightenment. So this is one of those stories. So I was living on the coast, uh, glassblower, and... Uh, I've been doing these craft shows and that, and uh, they were quite lucrative, good way to make cash, you know. And uh, I saw that there was one happening up in Auckland, and I'd mainly done the sort of North Island or Wellington, but I thought, well, it might be a really good idea to do that. And there'd been someone, an old friend of mine, that I really wanted to catch up with. and So I contacted him, and uh, he was, uh, he, he was a, a creator himself, and he was making these beautiful sort of cane baskets and that and I suggested that we we do a craft show to get in like share a stall and then yeah he was into it so uh we made arrangements and uh I got the wife and kids and uh packed up the falcon with all the all the glass and and the display stuff and drove up to Coromandel I left the wife and kids at, at Tony's place in Coromandel and him and I went to Auckland and set up our show so we shared a stall he had the first half of it with all his cane baskets and that and then i had the second part in which i'd kind of set this kind of cityscape of plinths where i'd put all my glass all over we were in the first aisle so you came in and then you turned the corner and we were about the fourth or fifth down on the on the left so you 
people would see us pretty much straight away. So we're all ready to go. It's the uh, it's the day. It's about twenty minutes before the show opens, and uh, I'm just standing there looking up the aisle there, and this absolutely stunning red-headed woman comes around the corner and we just lock eyes immediately just this lightning bolt of something just connected us and she walked straight over to me just looking at me and then she looked past me to my display of glass and she pointed at a piece and she said I just have to have that piece. And I said, all right. And I just handed it to her, gave it to her. And she said, thank you. She said, "Um, I don't have any money yet, but I'm working here for a couple of days helping this guy out. So, yeah, when I get some money, I'll I'll, give it to you. And I'm like, yeah, all good. She's like, well, I got to go. And I was like, sweet. So she took the vase and she left. Tony's like, bro, what are you doing? You just gave away one of your best pieces to a complete stranger, you know. And I was like, oh, I don't know. It was just one of those things. I, I just, you know, I, I figure it's going to work out all right. And he was like, oh, okay. So anyway, I put another piece in that spot. You know? Show opens. It's been open like 10, 15 minutes. Just looking up the aisle and... This guy comes around the corner. There's like a group of people in front of him, and he's just towering over him. He's got to be like six, five, six, six. Big, sort of tall bear of a man. Big, sort of beard and everything. Sort of uh, glasses. Look kind of professor-like. Anyway, he just locks eyes with me, and he just walks straight over to me, and he says, "You have just given away." your best piece to someone who is still in this building. And that person and you are destined to be together. And I'm here to help that happen. You have to come with me now and we will go and find this person. I was like, sweet, okay, let's do it. By this stage, Tony's like, oh my God, what? has happened to you have you gone crazy or something I was like hey it's one of these things where you just gotta roll with it so like mind the store I'm off with this guy so I walk off with this guy we don't really say much we just walk in and he says to me um this person he said I get a feeling that she's a woman and um she's she's somewhere here I, I feel like we're getting closer and closer to her and we're walking and he goes, ah, there she is over there and indicates. And I look over and there she is. And immediately she looks up and sees me and sees him. And we all just kind of like lock eyes and it's like the world just disappeared. And so we walk over to her and he says, he introduces himself and he says, hi, look, um, I'm here to help the two of you grow. And it's just a little thing. It won't take too long, but I need you to to be on board with us, are you? And she said, yes. And I said, 
yes. And he said, like, right, we'll get a couple of seats. So the guy she was kind of assisting, he did not like it. I think he fancied her or something. He wasn't very impressed. But anyway, he let her pull two seats out and we sat down and a crowd began to gather. So this guy starts talking about, you know, the structure of higher consciousness is like a pyramid and um and that both her and I were fives which is it's all right being a five five's pretty good apparently I mean I don't know I'd never heard of this sort of thing but he said that five wasn't good enough to actually really heal people we needed to be sevens and he was here to help us grow to being sevens and so he asked us to hold hands, and so we held hands, and he began to talk. And I can't remember what he said. I was just very aware of holding her hand and just the the electricity that was coming off her. I, I, I yeah, I was blown away. I, I, I was no thought. It was just kind of like it was like just breathing was all I could do. He says. Okay, he finished talking. He said, okay, so in a few moments, you're both going to feel a warmth in your stomach and it's, it's, going, to, it's going to travel and grow and get hotter and hotter. And it's going to spread through your whole body and then it's going to get to a point and then it's just going to melt. And not to be alarmed, it's all right. And then almost immediately... I begin to feel this warmth in my stomach, which, as he said, grew and grew until I felt infused with this heat. And then it just melted into this glorious feeling that just ran through my entire body. It was incredible. And apparently it had happened for her too. And when... We had both finished with this feeling. He said, there you are. You are now sevens. You are now able to help other humans grow and change. And uh, we were like, great, <laughs> cool. And um, he shook our hands and he said, uh, thank you. And he walked off. It was quite a big crowd then probably 30 40 people and they all started like clapping and stuff it was really surreal um and it felt I just felt kind of like uncomfortable and I'm looking at this beautiful red-headed woman and I felt like I'd known her intimately and yet I did not know her at all in fact I did not even know her name and we just looked at each other and um, she leaned in really close to me and she said, breathe. And as I inhaled, she exhaled into my mouth. And yeah. Wow. Incredible moment. Yeah, so there's more things that happened with her, but um, there are other stories. 